If you're able to remain standing, please do so. Either way, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 34. It's on page 74 if you'd like to use a Bible from the church. Exodus 34. I'm going to begin reading at verse 10. And um, to start us off, I'm going to try to get all the way over to verse 28. And then we'll try to pick up and read some more as we, as we go along. These are God's words for us this morning. And here's what God says in Exodus 34, verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. For all male, livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. For if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, for none shall appear before me empty-handed. For six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year you shall, shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders and no one shall covet your land. And when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until morning. 
The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. Not only is your word true, it's living, it's powerful, it's transformative. So we read it and now we look at it that you might do a work in us. Help us by the very presence of your spirit to consider these words. May you change us through these words. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Two things I want to think about this morning for the moments that we have together from this passage of Scripture. What is in play here is a restatement or a renewal of the covenant that God had already made with Israel. The first thing I want us to look at in consideration of that is the reproduction of the renewed covenant. And then in the verses that we haven't quite read yet that we hope to get to, I want us to see the second point, and that is the reflection of the renewed covenant. Moses is back up on Mount Sinai as these verses unfold for us. He's receiving instructions from the Lord. And what these instructions, what these words from the Lord pertain to is that they are a restatement or a renewal of the covenant that the Lord has made with Israel. Now remember, the Lord lives in relationship with his people through covenant. The Lord does relationship through covenant. He doesn't do casual relationships. He does covenant relationships. And the, these covenants spell out the terms and the expectations of what living in relationship with the Lord looks like, what it consists of. These covenant terms are not what establishes the covenant relationship, but these covenant terms um, express and show how the covenant relationship is experienced. Back in chapter 19 of Exodus, Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving, if you would, the original terms of the, of the covenant. He came down to the people from Mount Sinai with the covenant terms. And that led off in chapter 20 with the thrust of the covenant terms, the ten words or the ten commandments. But then at the second part of chapter 20, it's spilling over into chapters 21 through 24, there was the further laws or applications that were outworkings of those ten words or ten commandments. At the very tail end of chapter 24 is, is when the covenant was formally made or ratified between God and Israel. He was to be their God. They were to be his people. 
He had done what he had done for them in rescuing them from Egyptian captivity. And now here, are the, here were the terms for which they would live in relationship with God. Chapters 25 through 31, Moses is back up on the mountain receiving instructions on how the tabernacle was to be designed and laid out. And, but meanwhile, as Moses is up on the mountain once again, receiving the tabernacle instructions, uh, Israel in chapter 32 is back down at the base of Mount Sinai, bored and uncertain, and uh, they create an idol and worship the golden calf. Uh, there the covenant was rebelled against by the nation of Israel. Now in that context, Will the Lord continue on with the people of Israel? They have broken the covenant. Is God done with them? And what we see leading up to verse 10, but particularly in verse 10, is a reassurance of a restatement of a renewed covenant Gloriously, no, the Lord will not abandon Israel, even though they have rebelled against him and broken covenant with them. Why? They have failed in keeping their end of the bargain, if you would. Why would the Lord continue on with them? Well, the quick and skinny of it is something that was stated in verse 19 of chapter 33 when the Lord declares something gloriously beautiful about himself. I will be gracious to whom I am gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. What else accounts for why God would stick with a rebellious people? What else accounts for why God would continue on further with the people of Israel? There is nothing nati natively meritorious about the people of Israel as to why God would go on with them. He even says they are a stiff-necked people. What accounts for it is built into the very DNA, the very nature of God himself. He is a gracious and merciful God. He is completely free to dispense his grace and his mercy as it suits him, as it sees fit. And if he wants to be gracious to a stiff-necked people, if he wants to display mercy to a stiff-necked stiff people, he is God. And that's what he can do. And praise God, that's what he is going to do. And yet what unfolds here in this, so by renewing this covenant, he is renewing his commitment to stay with this people. In spite of, in spite of all of their stunts and shenanigans and sin, he will stick with them. And yet, as he goes on in verse 10, I want you to notice that there's a shift in focus here in this restated covenant, this renewed covenant. Whereas you might recall when he began to lay out the terms of a covenant of the covenant originally in Exodus 19, he, he 
puts in, if you would, a preamble to that covenant by reminding them uh, in Exodus 20 verse, uh, Exodus 19 verse 4, um, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, the preamble to the covenant in chapter 19 was looking backwards. Look at what I've just done for you. I've rescued you from Egyptian slavery. I've taken you from being captive to now being mine. And yet what he's spelling out for us here in chapter 34, verse 10, is he pivots. And the preamble for this renewed or restated covenant is not, look at what I've done for you in the past, but, but trust me. Look at, look at our future. Look at what I'm going to do for you. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. What God had just done in the Exodus was the most marvelous and jaw-dropping act of God up to that point, other than creation itself. But, but now here, here God's saying, but, but that's nothing compared to what we're going to do, what I'm going to do among you and for you. It is an awesome thing, he says in verse 10. It is an awesome thing I will do with you. No, it's just the preamble of this renewed, restated covenant is God saying to Israel, I got this. I got you. I got all things. Trust me as we move forward. Because I am going to move forward with you. And as he continues to pivot, he says there, observe, verse 11, all that, all, observe what I command you this day. And what he's going to unfold it with in, in verses 11 through 26 is a, an abridged restatement of the covenant that was spelled out in chapters 20 through 24. It's a very abridged. It's a, it's a very quick and skinny version. And, and, and in a sense, he even, he even narrows the focus of what they are to pay attention to, and what they are to observe and obey. In verses 11 through 17, he collapses the Ten Commandments and the application of the Ten Commandments by, by simply focusing upon the, the dangers of idolatry, worshiping false gods. And then in verses 18 through 26, he puts the, the positive orientation to that. Whereas negatively, if, if they are to trust God, they will need to worship only Him. Whereas in verses 18 through 20, if they are to trust God, they are to be faithful in worshiping Him in the manner that He has prescribed to be worshiped. 
Because here's the only glitch. He, he, he says to them, going on in verse 11, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, uh, the Jebusites. In other words, he's turned and he's not looking forward. I'm going to place you in the land that I promised to you, and I'm going to take good care of you. You're going to be well taken care of, and, and I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to protect you. I am God, and you will marvel at how I do this. There's only one glitch to this whole arrangement. It's not a glitch with God. The only glitch is, will Israel trust God to do what he says he will do? And the barometric indicator on whether or not they are trusting God to do what he says that they will do is, will they worship and obey only the Lord when they get into the land of the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, will they accommodate themselves and will they accommodate the worship of God in that land? In a similar and yet distinct way, that's, that's not altogether different than what you and I face. We have lots of thoughts and lots of opinions in our broader culture as to who God is and what God's like. I mean, we have figured out a way to recreate a God in our own imaginations. And, uh, and that's fine as long as we understand that's the world, that's not the church. But when the church accommodates their view and their worship of God to look more and more like how the world thinks God ought to roll, then that's a huge problem. That's the warning that he's giving to Israel here. That on the one hand, it's as simple as don't worship a false god. On the other hand, it's it's as complex as so be careful of allowing their false idols to remain upright. Be careful of how you covenant together with the world. Be careful about how you allow your sons to be married to their daughters. It's not a racial thing. It's not even really simply an, ethic, uh, an ethnic, eth ethnical thing. It is a worship and religious thing. In other words, they were to maintain a purity of worship. They were to push against every nook and cranny of how false worship could infiltrate and how they could accommodate the worship of the world as the world sees it in the worship of the true God. An accommodation is simply an expression of a failure to trust God. But there's a second thing, and, uh, and I'm just collapsing these and speeding through those 18 through 26 turn and talk not about how they aren't to worship, but how they are to worship. In other words, the trust, we, they were to trust in the Lord that he will do for them all that he has says he would do, and their obligation is to worship and obey only the Lord, and that means they won't accommodate to the gods of the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Amorites. They will worship only God, but secondly, they will build into their lives the patterns and the habits and the routines of worshiping God the way that God has prescribed to be worshiped. 
In other words, the, the danger that assaults them in verses 18 through 26 is not the danger of accommodation, that's 11 through 17, but the danger of apathy or distractedness in verses 18 through 26, 27. And that, again, that danger is not altogether disconnected from how you and I would face the dangers of maintaining a heart of true worship and obedience to the Lord today. We are not to accommodate to our culture, but we are to not grow apathetic toward compliance with the things that the Lord has asked us to comply with. We are to worship God the way that He has prescribed. Now, in the Old Covenant, that consisted of, of, uh, of, of a weekly Sabbath celebration. It consisted of a series of festivals in which they would leave their town and travel to, eventually travel to Jerusalem. Uh, and, uh, and, and yet already the danger is like, well, we're going to leave. We're going to leave our land. This is harvest season. This is planting season. And we're going to go worship God the way, I mean, I got a lot of work to do. And, 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 and yet God's asking me to, to go and, and to leave my land unattended to and undefended. That's why he would say in verse 24, I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. And when you go up and appear before the Lord your God three times in the year, in other words, you could leave your land and come and worship me because while you leave your land, I don't leave your land unprotected. You see why this is not just an issue of, if, okay, God says go to Jerusalem and worship Him. I guess I got to go do that. I mean, I got a lot, you know, this is an issue of do you really trust the Lord? If you trust the Lord, that'll be expressed in a, not an apathy toward His instructions, but an eagerness, a willingness, a gladness toward His instructions. So, how was Israel? to live in relationship with the Lord in the terms of the covenant. Well, they were to guard against accommodating their worship with the culture that they were moving into, and they were to guard against an apathy. They were to have the habits and the routines and the patterns of their life that cultivated the true worship of God the way God prescribed it. Now, you and I don't worship God through a series of annual festivals or even through the observance of the Sabbath per se. And yet in the new covenant, we are nonetheless to be a people who have a pattern, a routine, uh, a, a habit, if you would, of gathered worship. And we don't manage that legalistically. We don't, we don't come looking for you and string you up by your head if you fail to show up for church. And, and, and yet, we do have to think carefully about this. How do we maintain a trust, a reliance, a dependence upon the Lord? We have to understand that that is not self-generated that comes to us through the means of habits and patterns and uh, routines that we establish 
through marking off the opportunities to show up for gathered worship. This is not just a rule because, I don't know, we got nothing better to do on a Sunday morning. No, this is an opportunity, even, even as it's an obligation, that we might meet with God, that He might meet with us, and that in meeting Him, He gives us the grace that we need to maintain a heart of dependence and obedience and worship of Him. Well, that's, that's about as quick as I think I can do in terms of 10 through 28. Now, Moses is going to come down from receiving those instructions, and obviously what's implied here is that he's going to give those instructions, and yet there's something odd uh, that is seen in Moses as he comes down to give those instructions. And that's the second point. I want us to note something of the reflection of the renewed covenant, picking up in verse 29. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, they, they, uh, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would uh, put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is a strange passage, isn't it? Something's going on with Moses. <laughs> and you know what? Moses doesn't even know it. There's something going on uh, with Moses' face. It's shining. The only problem is without a mirror, guess what? Some of you... Didn't look in a mirror this morning. Without a mirror, you can't see your face, can you? We can all see it, but you can't see it. We can't see it. Aaron saw it. The people of Israel saw it. And they were scared out of their wits. What were they scared of? They were afraid at what became of Moses' face, because we're told here because he was meeting with God. He was talking with God. Now, the real point of this episode isn't uh, the mere shining face of Moses. No, the, the real point is, who is this God that when we see him, 
through the words that he speaks, when we see him through his words, it changes us. It transforms us. It, as a result of Moses talking with God and God talking with Moses, Moses was not left unchanged. Moses is the outlier here in this episode. He is experiencing, in terms of this glorious covenant that God is making with Israel, he, and sadly, he alone is experiencing what I would suggest to you God would want all of his people to experience. It's just that all they hear is rules and regulations. God's putting his thumb down on us. God's telling us we can't have, make a covenant with these people. We have to worship only him. God's telling us we have to work six days and then take the seventh day and, and rest. And God's telling us we've got to go and worship throughout the year. But they're missing the point. What do you think about when you think of the Christian faith? Do you think of... Well, man, it's, it's, it's a lot to keep track of. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that pertain to how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to act and how we're not supposed to talk. And, and, um, and while well, all of that is true... That's not the crux. No, Moses is reflecting for us the true intent of, of what is in play here in this passage. The people feared Moses. I would suggest to you that they feared Moses because they understood that there was a stark difference between them and Moses, and they didn't know what to make of it. Moses had seen something. <laughs> Again, play on concepts here, but Moses had seen something by hearing words. And as a result, his face was shining. Why? Let me suggest to you what I think is in play here. Oh, sure, there is covenant rules here. Every relationship has rules. But if all you see in God is a, a set of heavy-handed rules, then either you will live the Christian reality in despair or you will live the Christian reality in self-righteousness. And neither one of those are examples of hating it on the nail. No, I'm going back to what I said earlier. What Moses saw he, he, in, in hearing the rules and hearing the commands and in hearing the demand for exclusive worship of God, all of that made perfect sense to Moses because in hearing who God was as God described himself, Moses saw that as glorious. When Moses heard God say, I will be gracious to whom I am gracious. 
and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, then that lit Moses up. And all of the rules, all of the commands, all of the exclusive loyalty to worship God alone did not become burdensome, but it became a delight because he understood that, that this God had been gracious to him, that this God had been merciful to him, that this God had been kind and loving to him, and this God who is a, who identified himself as a great, as a jealous God, he does not see that as a petty, pathetic thing, but he sees that in in all the beautiful ways of this is a God who will protect us. This is a God who will stay close to us. This is a God who will guard us. This is a God who will be near to us. And he sees this in all of its graciousness and all of its mercifulness. And he is transformed by this. Or... We could simply appeal to how the Apostle Paul sees this. And I'll just do this briefly. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about this very passage about Moses' veiled face and how Moses saw glory. He saw the glory of God through the giving of the law. And, and yet... And yet what he does is he does that in the context of saying, but, but that was the old covenant. And yet his point was, even through the old covenant, the, the covenant that was temporary, the covenant that was condemning, the covenant that produced death, even through that covenant, God shone forth as glorious. Moses saw the glory of God in the terms of the old covenant because it's the same God who is gracious and merciful. How much more, the Apostle Paul is implying, that if, if Moses was able to have his face transformed, his life transformed by, by seeing the glory of God through the old covenant, then how much more in the new covenant, now that Jesus has come, now that we see not the revelation of the law, but the revelation of the Savior. How much more can we be given the opportunity, the privilege of seeing how glorious and beautiful and gracious and merciful Jesus is? So Paul would say, speaking of this event here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, now when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Spirit, now, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In other words, the, 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 the living in covenant with the Lord, if we see the glory of Jesus, is not a binding, mere obligatory, restrictive thing. It's an unleashing, liberating, freeing thing. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then he goes on to say, and we all. In other words, it's no longer just restricted to Moses and we all, whoever turned to Jesus, we all with unfailed face beholding the glory of the Lord are being 
transformed from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Oh, there is grace and mercy even through the law. And so Moses saw it, and Moses was changed by it. But for you and I this morning, we have more than the law to see, to look at, to see the glory of God. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who has bore up under the curse of the law for us and for our salvation, who has obeyed the law flawlessly, perfectly, and yet who has laid down his life in order to rescue us from the just condemnation of being lawbreakers. The mercy and the grace of God shines brighter through Jesus than it does in anybody else and in any other way. And you and I have the scriptures in which we can keep staring at words until we see the glory of God. Because as we stare at words, as we study words, as we read words, as we think about words, as we mull over words, as we memorize words, as we meditate on words, as we consider words, the Spirit of God shows us the glory of Jesus. And that resets this whole Christian thing. It's not just rules and regulations. It's grasping the beauty and the glory and the loveliness of Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have rescued us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you have not held our sin against us, though you would be fitting and just to do just that. We have rebelled against you. We have no basis for any merit before you. But you have sent Jesus to rescue us. Oh, and Father, while you shine gloriously through your righteous law, you shine even brighter and more glorious through the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. So help us this morning. There are some here who don't know Jesus at all. May you show them the glory of Jesus through, the, through your words. There are some who know some things about Jesus, but feel bogged down and bored or burdened by rules and regulations. Oh, Father, show them the glory of Jesus. And Father, for the rest of us, as we embark upon a new week, may we do so reset with a whole new grasp of how gracious and merciful you are in your Son. Help us. May we trust in you. May we rest in you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this.